0: Sometimes I think one of the biggest barriers to us tackling the climate crisis is our own lack of imagination and uh, not actually believing that we can do this.
1: This is Climate Curious, the podcast for people who are bored, scared or confused by climate change.
2: I'm Marian Pasha, the director and curator at TEDx London and the co-host of this podcast alongside the amazing Ben.
1: Hi, I'm Ben Hurst. Activist and advocate exploring what positive masculinities can look like, and self-confessed climate normie.
2: Ben, this conversation has been almost a year in the making, mm. right? Mm. We first met the person we're going to talk to um, today uh, a year ago at mm. TED Countdown in Edinburgh, and. You know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about how sometimes when we meet people, Ben, you feel like they're superheroes.
1: Yeah, 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 Like yeah, they're yeah. part of the
2: Avengers or something.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah. Some some people are villains and some people are heroes.
2: Yeah. And this is the latter. Yeah. You thought I was going to say villains. I, like, <laughs> I
1: was like, what? No, this is a hero. This is a superhero. Yeah. Um,
2: And I think that, one of the things about climate that, you know, is like the purpose of this podcast as well is that it can feel, it can feel like overwhelming. Yeah. You know, we've talked to Clover Hogan about eco anxiety. We've talked to people about how sometimes it can feel like a big, unwieldy, wicked problem. Yeah. Um, And one of the things that I really love hearing about is when we win.
1: Mm.
2: Right. I want to talk about the wins.
1: So should we talk about the wins? Let's talk about the wins. Let's talk about the wins. Okay. So check it. We've got with us today, Marianne here. And, Marianne is the Senior Director at Climate Imperative. Now, listen to me when I'm telling you this. This is serious, right? Marianne has been doing this. She's got over 25 years of experience um, in building and in leading effective campaigns and organisations. She was also uh, with the Sierra Club for about 12 years, where she served as the National Director of Campaigns. And she also worked as the Director of the Beyond Coal campaign, which was actually recognised as one of the most successful environmental campaigns in history. And that is not an over-exaggeration, right? The campaign blocked the construction of 200 proposed US coal plants. It also secured the retirement of two thirds of the existing US coal plants. And it helped usher in this new like clean energy era. And it also inspired sister beyond coal campaigns all around the world. Now, I have to start by saying thank you, Marianne, so much for joining us. And I think the place that we want to start this, right, is with a story. So can you tell us a story of a win? Well,
0: I would love to. And thank you for having me. My fellow Avengers, Ah, my fellow heroes Ah, for the planet. um, Let's please all go out there together with our fancy outfits and do
1: my Iron Man suit. I don't want to be Iron Man. I take that back immediately. But yeah, someone else.
0: <laughs> we'll get back to you on our specific characters. <laughs> yeah, <yeah, yeah>, exactly.
1: <laughs> That's another podcast. <laughs> uh,
0: well, let me tell you the the big story of a win, which is the story of the Beyond Coal campaign that I had the honor to lead for a decade. Mm. Uh, when we uh, uh, a decade ago in the United States, we were getting half of our electricity from coal. It was the biggest contributor to climate change and all sorts of very dangerous air and water pollution. And over the course of a decade, this incredible grassroots movement succeeded in securing the retirement of two-thirds of the coal plants in the United States. So currently, out of 530 coal plants that we had a decade ago, 358 are retired or slated to retire so again, five hundred and thirty to three hundred and fifty eight mm. uh down, so about one hundred and seventy two remaining. we were getting half of our electricity from coal in the u s now it's less than twenty percent we're now getting more electricity from renewable energy than from coal in the United States, and it has been the lion's share of the greenhouse gas reductions in the United States. Wow. Uh, I think eighty percent of the greenhouse gas reduction so I know that's a lot of numbers in there, but the the headline is: This is a grassroots, people-powered movement that transformed how we make electricity in the United States, away from fossil fuels toward renewable energy, and we just keep going and growing and making more and more progress.
1: How does it feel? How does it feel to like be a part of something like that, or to lead something like that? What's the
0: you know? I've been thinking about this recently because I um. I left the Sierra Club a year ago, and so I've been kind of reflecting back. And mm. I feel like when you're in the middle of something like that, you don't always realize that you're in the middle of something historic because you're so busy doing it. Right. And so we we're so busy. Uh, you know, a lot of these coal plants were making people sick. You know, they were mm. like giving kids asthma in the neighborhoods. They were releasing this toxic coal ash into the water. And so you're running around visiting people, learning about the struggles that they're having with pollution. You're trying right. to get decision makers to listen to you. But I would say the main thing that I always took away was working with people Mm. and working with folks on the ground who, again, are living with pollution, who are David and Goliath really taking on these incredibly powerful industries and being a small part of being able to help them win, helping David beat Goliath and seeing it happen again and again and again, coal plant after coal plant after coal plant. Uh, It just gave me a huge uh, appreciation for how much is possible and how much we actually can change the world.
1: Right. I I think as somebody – from the outside looking in, as as we've been saying, as you like to say, but from somebody like a normal civilian, I think especially at the beginning of this whole like podcasting journey and learning about the climate crisis and what's going on, this felt unachievable. Like the whole thing felt like this is an impossible task. We're destined to fail. It's so nice to hear like a story of like a real success like that. And that's like... uh, tangible success right not just like oh yeah the data's changed or like we've done but like real lives real people real climate change like impacted in real ways which is like incredible good job thank you (laughs) congratulations well done i'm proud (laughs) of you (laughs)
2: me and many many other people uh on on behalf of all of them uh thank you
1: yeah
2: (laughs) i want to take us back 10 years ago then because i do think that right now because of the work you you guys have done People think about coal and they think, yeah, well, it's like yesterday's news, you know, um, which is a testament to the work, right? Is in the mindset shift. But I want us, I want you, if you can, to take us to a decade ago. Um, you gave us the top line numbers about how much coal was being used, but what was the attitude like? Like, did you, when you start, when you, were, when you this campaign started, did it really feel like you were trying to move a mountain?
0: It absolutely felt like. We were trying to move a mountain. Um, And actually what brought me into this was trying to save mountains because Mm. the coal industry (laughs) was blowing them up (laughs) in Appalachia. And I'm from Appalachia. I live in West Virginia now. And, um, And the coal industry was literally trying to blow up mountains. Uh, no, they weren't trying. They were blowing up. They blew up hundreds of mountains wow. across Appalachia. To, it was I don't a,
2: think people really understand where coal comes from. I have to tell you, I just had no idea. I just assumed it was in the ground. You went down and got it. I didn't realize which
0: historically was what they did, but they, they, it was, the coal is in the mountain like layers in a cake. And so they would. this was a cheaper way to get the coal because it required fewer people. And so mm. they would drill a bunch of explosives, blow up the rock, scrape off the coal layer, drill down to the next layer of rock, shovel that into the valleys and literally flatten hundreds of mountains in Appalachia. Wow. So that was happening and and we were I was working with grass, grassroots folks trying to stop it. And there was this one new coal fired power plant that was proposed in this in the same region. So we started working to just try to stop this one new coal plant because we thought if they build this, then they're going to have all the more reason to keep blowing right, the to mountains keep up. Doing it. And it turned out it was one of 200 new coal-fired power plants that were proposed in the U.S. in this sort of George W. Bush era, early 2000s. And uh, there were people fighting them all over the place, grassroots people. And uh, we all kind of found each other and got connected and started learning from each other. And we stopped 200 coal plants from being built in the United States. And had they been built... Obviously, we would have been locked into this most polluting energy source for another 50 years, and there would have been no space for clean energy. The world would be a very different place, um, mm-hmm. and the climate outlook would be very different. And in doing all that, we, A, we learned we could win, and we learned how the decisions got made. And so okay. we then went – we realized, oh, well, if we can stop these you know, 200 coal plants – there's 530 existing coal plants. Mm. And let's use what we've learned and try to try to start retiring those. And to, back to your question, uh, what was it like? People thought we were crazy. I mean, people thought it was <laughs> yeah, impossible, right? Because if you think back to 2008, Barack Obama was running for president. Part of his platform was supporting clean coal. This was a, f- a phrase, a marketing phrase from the coal industry that people were using all the time. The coal industry was making... Half of our electricity. People said if you if we transition anything, the lights will go out and people's electricity bills will go up. And so it was seen as just a wild, impossible thing to try mm. to attempt when we set down uh, set on this course a decade ago.
2: I have I have, like goosebumps.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, this it is feels... a, This is a good story. It almost feels like a like a uh, like watching a film rather than it's proper Like, a, like your actual <laughs> real life. <laughs>
2: yeah. It feels really familiar mm. that narrative we're hearing now right around gas and around and around oil i want to I, I don't i don't want to take us away from the story for a second but i want to find out whether you feel like now in hindsight looking back you can draw these threads through that's to other like, polluting fossil fuel industries
0: absolutely i it's it is a similar Playbook of the gas industry, the oil industry, the coal industry, which is to um, you know kind of dominate the market, but also um, dominate the politics, Mm. and then make people very fearful of the alternatives. And you know, I think whether you look at the U.S. right now, um, in the places where the grid has really been strained by climate change, um, you know, in places like California and Texas, which uh, have had extreme weather that have test, has tested the grid. It's actually been renewable energy that has kept the lights on and things right. like battery storage. If you look right now across Europe where there's a huge energy crisis over uh, Russian oil and gas and coal being cut off, uh, the long-term energy security solution is renewable energy mm-hmm. because you don't have to buy the sun and the wind from, you know, mm-hmm. Vladimir Putin. And <laughs> and you will have these this forms yeah. of energy for, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah he's <is> pretty <laughs> diabolical, let's be real. <laughs> Maybe he'll find a way. And so I do think that, um, it's the same playbook from the fossil fuel industry mm-hmm. that they scare people that you can't live without this energy source that your lights will go out, your your electricity bills will go up, your power bills will go up. And right. the reality is this the solution to all of this is renewable energy in it. And now renewable energy is actually cheaper yeah, than fossil fuels. And it's getting at the scale that it can power huge parts of our economy. And so I really think we should just prepare ourselves to see a lot more of their confusing PR and dirty tricks and mm-hmm. interference with politics, but the, the trends are in the fa- on the side of clean energy. The economics, the politics, and the public will now are all on the side of clean energy. Does it feel like
1: you have moved from being the underdog to being on the winning side, or do you still feel like you're fighting like on, like on that kind of journey?
0: You know, once an underdog, always an underdog. <laughs> maybe right, 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 right. I think it's hard to it's hard to actually make that switch. And I think in the U.S. now, you know, we just passed this big climate uh, piece of climate legislation, and I got to go to the White House and be part of this huge celebration for the passage of the bill. Mm. And I had that thought about sw- switching our own mindsets from not always being the underdog, but mm. actually um, realizing that you're the, the um, momentum has shifted to your side and how do you take advantage of it? Because Mm. this is the key decade for the climate. And now uh, we have have this big policy in the US that's going to help us continue this transition away from coal to clean energy. And it's signaling to the rest of the world that we're going to step up and do something. And we're not just going to be showing up at climate negotiations and (sighs) making pledges and then going home and, and not delivering on them. So I do think it's a game changer. And I think getting out of, at some level, will will always be an underdog when it comes to the the money of the mm. fossil fuel industry. Right. They're always going to be able to blanket the world with commercials and fill up the coffers of politicians, you know, campaign funds, and mm. uh, we'll always be an underdog or for a long time, at least uh, financially. But I think, again, the economics, the technology and the the public are all are all now on our side and so we have to do as much as we can with that momentum and just keep going
2: mm. I want to understand what it takes to shut down a coal plant like how does one do that I respect the people who are doing that making that
0: sacrifice um the so one of the things about the beyond coal campaign that was uh, I think a sort of a transformational insight was that that decisions about how we make electricity in the United States were not all made in Washington, and they were not all made in the White House or in the Congress. They were being made in states. And so as advocates, we had to learn how to go into those places and make the kind of arguments that those decision makers were going to hear, which were about keeping the lights on and keeping energy bills low. And we learned how to make the argument that clean energy was actually the way to keep the lights on and keep energy bills low. Um, And we were up against these huge electric utilities that are essentially monopolies. And so we were very much the underdog in those venues, but we learned how to make good arguments. The other thing that we did was at the national level, there were all of these huge loopholes for coal pollution. So uh, when President Obama came into office, there were no standards for coal plant greenhouse gases or mercury, which is this neurotoxin. Yeah. There were no federal standards for that. They were wow. just putting 100% of it in the air. There were no federal standards for the coal ash, which is <laughs> this stuff that's like the ash in a fireplace, wow. and it's full of toxic heavy metals. And it is, was the second biggest volume of solid waste in the United States after municipal garbage. And there were no federal standards for... like. It was literally getting dumped in holes in the ground. So we took wow. these loopholes and we pushed the EPA to either close them or shrink them with new regulations. And so that was the other part of, of what forced changes was once these coal plants had to actually deal with their pollution, then they thought, oh, well, do we want to spend a bunch of money on this coal plant to get it up to date or do we just want to retire it and look at, look at other options? So it was the mm. federal pressure and the state pressure together was
2: how we kind of- Smart. So really smart. I want to, I want to pull this apart because this is so fascinating because I think that when we're thinking about campaigning and I've, I remember this realization in like a totally different realm at what, you know, when I was working more in human rights is figuring out where the decisions are made, right? I think we all assume that decisions are made at the highest levels, but not all decisions are made there. So that's something that I took from there is like identifying that. And then the other thing is making it too expensive to continue business as usual, right? Which seems like so smart i i want to ask you a strategy question because i think sometimes when we are campaigning on something that we feel very deeply about our arguments seem to sometimes be like moral or ethical arguments but what i'm hearing from you is you made economic arguments and you made data arguments and i want to understand how do these things come together How have you found them to be effective in the mix? Well, the way
0: that you described it is exactly the way we thought about this problem. And I would encourage anyone who cares about some piece of the climate puzzle to think about uh, is what are you trying to do? What's your actual goal? So in our case, it was retire all the coal plants and replace them with clean energy. Mm -hmm. Um, who, Who can give you that? And it's not like an institution. It's not the... You the know, United States government or some big corporation. It's actually, is there a person? Is there a decision maker or a couple of decision makers somewhere that, that have the power to make that decision? And um, who are the people and the groups of people that they listen to? And what are the messages that are going to motivate either, you know, those sort of those audiences or that decision maker themselves?
1: Because mm. my assumption is like with the general public, you are trying to pull on people's heartstrings, right? Like you're trying to convince them that this is about being a a good person or doing a good thing in the world whereas for people whose motivation is making money and doing good business um we asked someone the other day about whether people are uh who who are uh innovating within the climate space are doing it because they are good people or they're doing it because it will make money and the person's response was they're doing it because they can see that it's the future. Um, and we asked again for clarification. They just repeated the same thing. But I think it's that idea of like, what is what is the correct way of communicating that message? Because um, it's always the same message, right? Like regardless of, of who you're talking to, but it's just a different way of communicating it.
0: I agree. And I think there is the need also to just have the broader general public uh, mobilized and fired up about what needs to change. Right. And that it's not uh this sort of more targeted campaign strategy is not the only thing we need to do in the world. We also need to uh, we need it. I mean I think the reason we were able to pass a climate bill in the United States because we have, you know, people are having fires on their doorsteps and they're yeah. having floods on their doorsteps and this, you know, this movement has mm. has educated people over the years to, you know, help connect the dots and point to there's a better future. There's clean energy there's Clean energy jobs. There's mm-hmm. economic opportunities with clean energy, so let's go down this this new path. Um, so I think we have to do both. Mm-hmm. We have to do the mass education and mobilization, mm-hmm. and you don't want to confuse that with a campaign strategy. You know, right. it's not sufficient. You've also got to pinpoint what are the things you're trying to change, who are the decision makers, how do you get them to to make the decision that you're you know wanting them to make. And I think I think we have to do both. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's this both-and mentality mm-hmm. that we need. Yeah. I was reflecting on a conversation earlier about sometimes it can be frustrating when people are all one or all the other, Um or not people, when – you feel like a campaign or a movement is all one or all the other. And actually it's so much more valuable if you can see the role that people have to play, that some people have to be the loud people or the people who glue themselves to things. Right. And some, and you know, and some people have to be the ones that are thinking strategically and having the conversations. And I think it's when we pit those people against one another that the incumbent wins. I agree. Every
1: podcast needs a go. That's greatest of all time. And ours is the global bank City.
2: City is Telex London and Climate Curious's headline partner and has been with us every step of the way on this podcast, supporting our vision and encouraging us to be courageous and
1: adventurous with our ideas. Instead of your typical boring ad, we actually thought you might be more interested to hear about some of the initiatives City has played a part in.
2: The City Foundation backed the world's first thermal packaging material made from surplus feathers, called Plumo, produced by London-based startup Aeropowder. This was through the City Foundation's work with the Mayor's Entrepreneur Programme.
1: Using surplus feathers is great because one, it reduces waste, two, it contributes to a circular economy, and three, it reduces our reliance on plastics, which we typically use for packaging.
2: It's cool to see how supporting student projects can help grow a whole new generation of green businesses.
1: Nice one, City.
2: Thank you for making this podcast possible.
1: Now back to the show.
2: So, going back to this campaign for a second, the Beyond Coal campaign. So, you had this huge, these huge successive wins in the US. Where did you go? Like, like, what happened? Because coal is still an issue in other parts of the world. I mean, obviously, it's still part of the mix here, and the work is still ongoing. But what about globally? What's the picture like?
0: Well, one of the exciting things that happened uh, in the, uh, like around 2016, 17, is other countries started creating their own Beyond Coal campaigns. So mm-hmm. there is a Europe Beyond Coal campaign. That's a coalition of 40 organizations. There is a Japan, South Korea, and Australia Beyond Coal campaigns, you know, kind of that shared name and vision and branding of phasing out coal coal and replacing it with clean energy in those geographies. And, um, and now I, there's a whole global network of advocates from every continent that are all working to move away from coal to clean energy. And now I think it's a, a pretty universal, I mean, the big climate conference last year uh, in Glasgow, these are not my words. These are the worlds of like the United Nations, uniting the world to consign coal to history. Mm. And I was sitting in the room with Bruce Nillis, who uh, he and I ran the Beyond Coal campaign together for 10 years. Sitting in the room in Glasgow, seeing those words on the screen of uniting the world to consign cult to history, and I just was—I was blown away that in a decade, the work that we and so many other people had done had shifted the debate, and shifted the terms, and shifted everyone's mindset so much that now it was just not a matter of whether we're going to consign cult to history, but when and how fast. Right. And um, and so I think that it truly is now a global shared understanding that we have to get away from coal as fast as we can and that we need to replace it with clean energy and not with renewable energy and not gas. And that's just a testament to advocates and advocacy and tenacious determination over many, many years.
1: So what is the next move for you? Like what's the, because for me, I feel like I would crave the feeling of like going back to the, you know, like the feeling of the underdog and like going back to the beginning and going mm-hmm. back to the grassroots stuff. And do you like start the cycle again somewhere else with a different issue or is there like a,
0: well, I think one of the things that I, uh, what, so the thing about this moment is we are running out of time. Mm. And so I, what I'm really thinking about is how do we scale this to go even bigger and even faster? Mm. Uh, because, um, we now not we don't just need to get off of coal in the electricity sector hmm. we need to get off of all fossil fuels in the electricity sector wow. and we need to electrify buildings and industry and transportation so that we're driving cars and living in homes that are powered by electricity and that electricity is clean mm-hmm. and we need to like ratchet up that progress in all those areas as fast as we can uh, this decade and so I'm really thinking about um, how to how to take the lessons that we learned and then you know learn things from other folks and other movements and uh, and
2: and exponentially speed up that progress hmm. this story just makes me super happy um, <laughs> uh, and when i'm happy i'm quiet <laughs> as opposed to every other member on this podcast um, <laughs> when i'm like
1: oh, when i'm worked up You're like, i need to say the <laughs> things
2: um, i think knowing that we can win Mm. is so important. Otherwise it feels like a never ending battle to know that actually other people moved unmovable things. That is just, I think that's just equally as important. Yeah. I agree with you so much.
0: Sometimes I think one of the biggest barriers to us, um, tackling the climate crisis is our own lack of imagination Mm. and, Uh, not actually believing that we can do this. And I believe that we can. I really do. And I think um, if you think about just in the U.S., the progress in the last decade just on how we make electricity and then having passed this piece of legislation that is going to really accelerate and turbocharge this kind of transition across our whole economy and then the signal that that sends around the world, um, you know, I, I really believe that we are the architects of our future. And it's not the fossil fuel industry, that we are the ones who are gonna write the next chapter of our future. And I think if we step into climate work with that orientation, that we can actually win. Mm. Um, Our ambition is higher and our audacity is greater. And the things that we can achieve are beyond even what we can imagine.
2: Mm. You talked about the signals. What signals do you think it can send? And what is your hope on an international level for movement?
0: So there were several organizations that modeled the greenhouse gas impact of this bill. Mm. And largely all mm-hmm. kind of came to the same conclusion. That the president's goal is 50% greenhouse gas reductions this decade this gets us 40%. So this gets us within striking distance of actually meeting the climate goal that then puts us in the United States in alignment with the overall world, you know, Paris climate targets. Mm -hmm. So in terms of how much this can bring greenhouse gases down this decade, it is extraordinary. And I think that that in of itself is important because it will spur Innovation, it will spur the creation of new businesses, new industries, lots of new jobs, lots of new kind of uh, like a lot of there are going to be a lot of new stakeholders who are very, who are very uh, wedded to and have a lot of ownership in continuing this clean energy economy. So mm-hmm. I think here
2: the momentum is just going to grow. It's It's awesome. It makes me feel very awesome. hopeful, right? Yeah. Like we need like these moments, like these acceleration moments and that's what it feels like. So I'm just super grateful that you <laughs> have come and shared the story with us and and just also really grateful for the work that you yeah. have done and continue yeah. to do. Like it is, it is awesome to watch.
1: And now... It's time for our climate confessions. Let's fess up to the bad habits we just can't kick.
2: It's come to that time in the episode, Marianne, where we're going to ask you your climate confession.
0: Well, I do live in West Virginia, as you know. And so I must confess that I'm pretty sure my electricity is still like 90% coal.
1: (sighs) No, no, no! <laughs> Cut the end. The end. The podcast. End the episode. Cancel the whole thing. This is.
2: <laughs> I
0: well, am you have no a con- flaming you know, hypocrite. <laughs>
2: you, well, how do you? How that's see? This is the thing. Actually, this is such a good one because can you even really control that? Where you because of where you live? Well, this is the. This is, I think, a, a good example of
0: the limits of individual choices Mm -hmm. versus systems. I mean, if I could have a switch on my wall that said the solar switch versus the coal switch, I would obviously switch on the solar switch Mm. um, to get, you know, the grid to be sending me power uh, that is, that is clean. But West Virginia is, I mean, the whole world knows that Senator Manchin was my Senator holding up climate progress because he's so tied to the coal industry Mm -hmm. and the coal industry still controls the state. And so, uh, most of our electricity still comes from coal. We're one of the uh, most coal dependent states in the country. Mm. And a further confession, uh, I, <laughs> I, my house I lived in before, we did have solar, but in this house, there are a lot of trees. And so if we wanted to have solar, we would have to cut down cut a bunch trees of trees, down. which seems like kind of a, defeating the purpose to cut a bunch of trees down yeah. and put mm-hmm. up solar panels. So we don't have solar on our house. And yeah. so I'm just dependent on the grid. And I think uh it motivates me to keep going until someday my <laughs> maybe my electricity is fifty percent coal or thirty mm. percent coal in West Virginia. Um, but it, but it it's the kind of the our our individual choices can only get us so far and then we have to change these this, systems.
2: This is so true. And also I think that one of the kind of just say the One reflecting on knowing you, Marianne, and and this story, and where you live, one of the reasons I think it's so powerful is it's very easy to be like, we should not use coal. When you live somewhere where you can just be like, I'll get my wind, my my electricity from wind, or where (laughs) maybe the people down the road from you's jobs aren't dependent on the coal industry, or where you don't live in a place where the whole. Like society is tied to this industry. Yeah. So for you to do this work where you are from and not to move, <laughs> which I'm sure has been <laughs> tempting. It's beautiful there. I love it.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, we won't sing the song. You hear but... that, everyone. She loves the coal.
2: No, <laughs> she loves I West Virginia. Secret, yeah. is <laughs> um, secret
1: is out. The secret is out.
2: Don't tell anyone. Super meaningful, right? (laughs) Like it's. I think it adds another layer and a dimension to this story that I I really appreciate because I think I think that maybe I would like I would be like you know I just don't want to be here anymore you know, but to stay and to be embedded in that community and to fight is just awesome. So so thank you for sharing it with us and thank Mm. you for doing the work. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for coming. And remember, stay curious. Thank you for joining us this week. We really hope you enjoyed this episode.
2: If you did, please hit the follow button to make sure you get next week's
1: release. We are now officially crowdsourcing Climate Confession, so please leave yours in the ratings and the reviews section, and we'll shout out for you next time. A
2: huge thank you to our headline partner, Citi, who has supported us for the past six years to bring world changing ideas to the TEDx London stage and has championed Climate Curious since day one.
1: And shout out to our fabulous team behind the pod.
2: This episode was produced by Josie Coulter,
1: comms written by Tess Lowry,
2: artwork designed by Rebecca Mingus,
1: curation by Marion Pasha.
2: Mixed and engineered by Ben Beheshti.
1: Music also by Ben Beheshti. Presented by Ben Hurst. And Mariam Pasha. Remember, stay curious.